I got to say, I was almost brought to tears earlier while we were singing. This is uh, the first time Julie and I, this is my wife Julie sitting over here. Y'all say hi to Julie. Uh, this is the first time we've been back to in-person church since last March. Uh, last March, my middle daughter and her family came to see us during uh, their spring break in Dallas, and they stayed for eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> And we enjoyed most every day. <laughs> I think after that eight weeks, we said we were too tired to go to church. Uh, but Julie's kindergarten back, kindergarten teacher background jumped into jumped into uh, shape there, and yeah, we had a we had a powerful two months. Then they left, and we've been doing what most of y'all have doing since then, and that's trying to figure out how to live in this. Uh, anxiety-provoking year that we've had, uh, 2020 and now into 2021. So here we are in Matthew 6, verses 26 through 27. And we are, we're talking about anxiety, worry. Uh, we're kind of talking about stress. And Lance asked me a couple, um, over a couple months ago about doing this and speaking this morning. And actually I thought, oh, I would love to do that. Because quite frankly, I've spent most of my adult life thinking about anxiety, how it affects uh, me, how it affects others, how it affects people. That is one of the most common presenting problems that bring people into my office is they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed. So uh, I was excited about doing that. And from that point on, I've been anxious about speaking here this morning. So like, thanks a lot, Lance. I appreciate that. <laughs> Julie and I usually start our day, we're at that age, where we ask one another the question, how'd you sleep? <laughs> and uh, and uh, she said, I slept pretty well. And she said, how'd you sleep? And I said, I was anxious all night, uh, thinking about doing this, having speaker anxiety about standing up in front of people. If y'all thought y'all had to stand up and speak in front of people, you might have some anxiety as well. So I get it. So what a passage. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and, let, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You know, it's interesting. There's a, there are some scholars who say that last phrase can add a single hour to your life. Some scholars say that that actually says, can add a single cubit to your height. So those of you who wish you were taller, this is an admonition to you as well. So <laughs> worrying can add a single hour to your life. Here's what I want you to begin to think about. I'm going to say a few things this morning that are kind of from my psychobabble background about uh, counseling and worry, anxiety, and stress. And then we're going to talk about specifically what I think God is getting at in this passage or Jesus is getting at in this passage. But I want you to think of your mood as right here as this is when I feel really good. This is when I feel like I'm my best self. When your mood goes above this midpoint, it's what we call an anxious mood. You feel agitated, aggravated, nervous, tense. This is an anxious mood above the midpoint. When it falls below that, it's what we call a depressed mood. Now, in our normal everyday life, we have a fluctuating mood. 
it goes a little above and a little below this midpoint. When it goes above, we're anxious. When it goes below, we're depressed or depressive. Our brain is a regulatory organ. So when our mood goes this direction, our brain is trying to soothe and bring it back down. When our, brain, when our mood goes this direction, our brain is trying to stimulate and bring it back up. That's why depressed people, their brain is looking for what can I do to stimulate. And they're drawn, sometimes even get addicted to what? Stimulants. And when people are anxious, we get, uh, our mind is flooded with thoughts oftentimes of what can I do that would be soothing? What have I done in the past? What did my memories say? Well, do this, that'll be soothing. So I want you to begin to think about how do I go through life and my brain is telling me what to do to either stimulate or be soothing? Because that's what it's really trying to do. It's trying to help you live that best sense of yourself right here. Jesus is talking to his disciples all through this. This whole passage, y'all remember, uh, this is during the Sermon on the Mount. Crowds starting to gather. Jesus went to a mountainside and began to teach. And for about three chapters of our scriptures, we have the greatest sermon ever preached. And in the middle of that, he addresses of all things, their anxiety. And later on in verse 10, he sends out his disciples in to do the ministry and he revisits it even again, knowing that they are anxious. Now, when Jesus called these, t- these 12 disciples, think about this context. They left their lifestyle to follow this teacher. And when you begin to read about what they did during the next three years, He is forever talking to them about anxiety. He says says things throughout this three years' time. Why are you afraid? You guys, uh, he almost says, you guys are frustrating me or creating anxiety in me. Jesus was not anxious, I'll have you know. But it's like he is constantly talking to them about what's going on, either their discouragement or their anxiety. So, You haven't and you won't graduate from experiencing this fluctuating mood. It's a normal part of our life. What this passage raises is what do you do when you have it? What do you do when you have it? Not if, but when. So what is worry exactly? Well, worry is what happens when your mind entertains negative thoughts. Uncertain outcomes are things that could go wrong. When your mind entertains negative thoughts, uncertain outcomes, or when things could go wrong. Worry tends to be repetitive. Simply put, worry happens in your mind, not in your body. Worry is about your thoughts. How does worry work? Worry can have an important function in our lives. When we think about an uncertain or an unpleasant situation, such as being unable to pay the rent or a scary medical diagnosis, our brains become stimulated, as we would hope they would. Worry can cause us to problem solve or take action, both of which are positive things. 
Worry is a way for your brain to handle problems. So if you're a student and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I forgot that I've got a test this Friday. And it's like Thursday, 5 p.m. <laughs> you're going to begin to worry. And if that worry stimulates your brain in such a way as to go, I've got to cancel everything and study all night. Then it just prompted you to take action. And now you're doing something about it. And the worry, quite frankly, becomes a little diminished because now you're doing something about the thing that your brain initially was worrying about. It's only when we get stuck thinking about a problem that worry stops being functional, and that's when we call it obsessing. Obsessing. Now, the Bible translators use the word worry to talk about a, a lot of actually three or four different things. But we're going to today talk about obsessive thinking. Because worry is not simply thinking about something. Worry is, in, in this scriptural context, is obsessing about something. Has anyone ever told you, I get it. Let it go. We get it. That is them saying, you're obsessing about something for whatever reason I'm not obsessing about, and it's irritating me. Obsessing is when you're stuck in the worry and you're not taking action. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus was saying, don't ever think about what you're going to eat. I think about what I'm going to eat a lot. The day had hardly started, and I asked Julie, what are we doing for dinner tonight? And I don't think I'm that odd. And last night I caught Julie on the internet looking at Amazon at sweaters for a birthday party we're going to next weekend. I go, what are you doing? Do you not know the, that the God of Scripture, the Lord of heavens and earth, says He will clothe you? Get off Amazon for crying out loud. And I also saw on Amazon where she bought bird seed. It says right here in Scripture, He will feed those birds. We do not need to spend $35 on bird seed. And she said, he will feed them. He's using me as a conduit of his love for the sparrows. I go, well, they're eating it really fast. I think they're, they're sinning. They're gluttonous birds. Have them slow down because I'm not adding $35 every two weeks to our budget. I like watching the birds eat. Well, watch them eat. Just pay closer attention. They don't all have to come to our bird feeder. <laughs> there are problems here. There are things you can take away this morning from this sermon. <laughs> Wear the sweater you wore last year to your brother's birthday. It's his wife. And she goes, I can't wear the same sweater to a party. I go, it was a year ago. They live in Dallas. No one has seen you since then. She says, well, I'll know. And I go, you're obsessing. You are so full of sin. <laughs> That's obsessing. Three things to help, not if, but when you obsess. One, give yourself an obsessing budget. It's an amount of time in which you allow yourself to obsess about a problem. When that time's up, consciously redirect your thoughts. Consciously redirect your thoughts. And we'll do, talk a little bit more about that later. When you notice that you're obsessing about something, push yourself. Discipline, require. Paul in another place in Scripture says, take captive. Don't be passive about your thought life. Pay attention to what your thought life is. 
discipline yourself, push yourself to come up with a next step or to take action. Do not wallow in the obsession. Write your obsessive thoughts down. Journaling is a helpful tool for most people. Research has shown that just 8 to 10 minutes of writing your obsessive thoughts causes them to, de- causes them to diminish. Those of you who journal and hang on to your journals can look back and I bet you'll recognize in hindsight, I was obsessing about that back in the day, back in 2017 when we were in that season of struggle or whatever. I really was prone to obsess about this. And you'll see in hindsight a failure oftentimes on our part to take action in a timely manner. Give yourself an obsessing budget. Remember, worry is helpful only if it leads to change, not if it turns into obsessive thoughts. So worrying is not just thinking about something. It's obsessing about it without taking action. What is stress? Stress is different than worry. Stress is a physiological response connected to an external event. It's usually some kind of external circumstance like a work deadline or a scary medical test. About a year and a half ago, out of runny nose, I went to the doctor And the nurse practitioner said, how long have you had an irregular heartbeat? And I said, I didn't know I had an irregular heartbeat. And she said, you got an irregular heartbeat. I mean, she wasn't laughing at me, but that's the way I tell the story. She said, well, yes, you have an irregular heartbeat. We'd like you to see a cardiologist right above us, in the floor above us. uh, And we want you to go directly up there. I go, well, okay. And it's like 440 when she gives me these instructions. Well, I go up there at 458. And the sign on the cardiologist's door, and she said, we've called them. They're, they're looking for you. So I go up there at 4.58, and the sign on the door says they close at 5 p.m., and the door is locked. They left early. So I began to worry that apparently I have an irregular heartbeat. I don't know much about irregular heartbeats, uh, but I have an irregular heartbeat. So long story made a little shorter, I finally get in to see the cardiologist, whose name is which really helps me a lot, Dr. Pepper. He's an awesome, godly Christian man, Gregory Pepper. He's my cardiologist. I get in and see him, and he does does this checkup, and he says, you have an irregular heartbeat. And I said, well, I've heard that. And he said, I'd like to do this thing to get it back in right order. And uh, this thing he'd like to do costs a lot of money. And I said, well, and I have no symptoms, no symptoms whatsoever. And uh, all the symptoms that apparently go with irregular heartbeat, I've got none of them other than you can hear it not beat to time. And I go, I, have, I do not have rhythm. I've never had rhythm. That would explain that. He said, that's really not the problem we're trying to describe here. He said, he said I'd really like to do this procedure that zaps it and gets it back in, in order. And it's very expensive. And I say to Dr. Pepper, I say, Doc, All I do all day long is sit in a chair and listen to people. The Texans haven't called me back. The Astros say it takes too long for me to get to first base. I really think we'll be fine here. Why don't we just look at it? You and I get together every six months. You look at it. If I get worse, we'll do that thing. And if I don't, let's just rock along until my symptoms get worse. He said, well, we can do that if you want. So I go back in six months. He says, you still have a regular heartbeat. And I said, well, I still don't have any symptoms. So we do it another six months. Anyway, he says, I really, really want to do the thing. 
So I say, okay, let's do the thing. And he does the thing, and he says, my irregular heartbeat's gone away, and I still don't have any symptoms, and I'm still doing the same thing. What really caused symptoms when he told me is, I want to put you on this medication. And I said, okay. So I went to Randall's <laughs> to pick it up, and they said it's going to be $572 for a month's of your medication. I said, I got an irregular heartbeat now. I got symptoms now. <laughs> I went back to him and I said, we're going to have to find another way because I, I can't afford $572 a month in medication. He says, well, I'll load you up with samples. And I said, we should have started there because you made my heart beat, my heartbeat get irregular. So he did, and that lasted four or five months, and he ran out of samples. <laughs> So I finally agreed to zap my heart, and apparently it's good to go now, and I'm on a cheap, uh, probably a placebo medication now. <laughs> I don't know if it's helping or not. Uh, so that's stress. Stress is defined as a reaction to an environmental change that forces, that, that exceeds our resources. This thing is happening, Now I don't have the time or the money to comply with it, and it's stressful. So as worries happening up here, stress is something that's brought on by an external event. How does it work? In other times, stress was a response to threat, like we hear a predator in the bushes and we, uh, we grab our weapon because we're going to have to defend ourselves. Today, it still prompts the same behavioral response. It fires up our limbic system and it releases adrenaline and cortisol to our brain. and We become hyper uh, vigilant and ready to handle the situation. So it activates our brain to deal with the threat. Symptoms of stress that we're all familiar with are things like a rapid, a rapid heart, rate, heart rate, clammy palms, shallow breath. Stress might feel good at first because it's a rush of adrenaline. You might have experienced the benefits of stress as you race through traffic to get to an appointment or pull together an important assignment in the final hour. Stress is leaked to health concerns such as digestive issues, increased risk of heart disease, weakening of our immune system. So that's worry and stress. What is anxiety? If stress and worry are the symptoms, anxiety is the culmination. Anxiety has a cognitive or a mental element, that's the worry, and a physiological response, that's the stress, which means that we experience anxiety in both our mind and our body. In some ways, anxiety is what happens when you're dealing with a lot of worry and a lot of stress. There are two kinds of anxiety. One's called chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety is what we all have. You have felt it, I, I suspect, already this morning. It's hard to imagine even not using words like worry and afraid in our vernacular. This morning, Julie said something to me, and I said, say what? And then she repeated it, and I say, one more time. And she goes, are you deaf? I, I worry about you, which really irritates me when she says uh, a few minutes ago, she came in and she goes, oh, I forgot my Bible. I have to go get it. And I go, we don't have time for you to run home and get it. She goes, no, it's just in the car. And, she, and I said, I worry about you. Said it back to her. 
We worry about all kinds of things. At any moment during the day, you can close your eyes and think of things you're worried about. That's called chronic anxiety. Chronic is just what's there all day long. Remember that plane right here? Our chronic anxiety is how many ticks we are above the, mid, the midpoint. Two or three. Chronic anxiety is additive, meaning things can stack on top of each other, and your chronic anxiety can be pretty, pretty, pretty high. Well, the other kind of anxiety is called acute. Acute is when we have a spike. Acute is when you're on a sidewalk and you see a rattlesnake. Acute is when the light turns green and you pull out, and all of a sudden somebody flies through at the intersection of 359 and 723. I've seen that a few times. Lance was just telling me on 359 near a place that y'all were looking at purchasing some land for a church, he's almost been in a car wreck two or three times. So he's thinking, maybe not the best corner of the highway to put a church, because y'all will be having wrecks all the time. So... Chronic is what we feel all the time to various levels. Acute is when it spikes up. The higher your chronic is, the less margin you have to assimilate the acute stuff. What do you do to help with your anxiety? Limit your sugar, alcohol, and caffeine intake. Anxiety is physiological. Stimulants have a significant impact. When you're in the middle of an anxiety episode, talking or thinking about it will not help you. Try to distract yourself using your senses. Listen to music, jump rope, move. Here's the takeaway. Worry happens in your mind, stress happens in your body, and anxiety happens in your mind and body. In small doses, worry, stress, and anxiety can be positive forces in our lives. But research shows that most of us are too worried, too stressed, and too anxious. The good news, there are simple, not easy, first steps to help regulate your symptoms. Get enough sleep, eat regular nutritious meals, and move your body. Now let's look at the verse, because I think God has something very specific for us to take away this morning with. He says, are you not much more valuable than they? Referring to the birds. Are you not much more valuable than they are? There are eight questions in verses 25 through 34. I love questions in Scripture, especially those asked by God or Jesus. Because when God asks us for a question, one of the things Scripture tells us about God Himself is that He's omniscient, meaning God knows everything. So when, he's at, when He asks a question, He's not on a fact-finding journey. He's not doing research. He's not going, you know, I wish I knew something. Hang on, angels. I'm going to ask Matt something. So I'll know something that I don't currently know. God never asks a question he doesn't, he doesn't already know the answer to. So when he asks a question, what he's up to is he's trying to reveal to us, by us answering it, something that's in our blind spot. When God asks you a question, he wants you to learn something that you don't know, that you didn't even know you didn't know. Think of all knowledge. 
think I've got a, I've got a piece of pie here. It's a large pie because I'm thinking about my meal tonight. And this pie represents all knowledge. And there's a small slice that represents everything you know. You know a lot, but it's still a small slice when it comes to all knowledge. There's another slice, slice that's bigger than the first slice, and it's the slice that represents the things you know you don't know. Like I know how to turn on the lights in here. I just don't know how to explain electricity. I know I don't know how to speak Russian. I know I know how to speak English, but I know I don't know how to speak Russian. Small slice, things you know. Little bigger slice, things you know you don't know. Well, the rest of the pie are the things you don't even know you don't know. And the beauty of that is that's where personal transformation takes place. That's where growth takes place. So when God asks us a question, He is, he is taking us into that part of our lives of the things we don't even know we don't know. And they're not hard questions necessarily, but they are questions that are intended to, intended to stop us and make us reflect. And that's this question here. It says, are you not much more valuable than they? I'm going to pay that 35 bucks for the bird seed if for no other reason it causes, I kid y'all not, 45 blackbirds to show up and eat bird seed in our backyard at a time. I mean, they're total gluttons. And they're eating there. And I'm going to look at those birds like Lance told us to do. And I'm going to reflect on those birds. And I'm going to go, God loves me so much more. I am so much more valuable than those birds who my wife is taking an inordinate amount of care for. <laughs> I just can't let it go, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessing about sending money to Amazon so the birds who don't even, aren't even named can eat in my backyard. Here's what I say. I say our worry is the result of misplaced value. Our worry is the result of misplaced value. Here's how I know. I want you to think of your needs. We have all kinds of needs, but I want you to think of your needs in three different categories. The first category is what we call crucial needs. Crucial needs are things like meaning, purpose, worth, value, and hope. Meaning, purpose, worth, value, and hope. Only God can meet our crucial needs. I wish it were not so, but only God can meet our crucial needs. There's not a vacation, there's not a job, there's not a pile of money, there's not an experience that the planet Earth has to offer that will meet your crucial needs. Only God can meet them. And if they go unmet for an extended period of time, you're going to despair. You're going to feel hopeless. Those are crucial needs. The middle needs, the next kind of needs are called critical needs. Critical needs are relational needs. We are relational beings by design with relational needs. Examples of relational needs are affection, approval, acceptance, appreciation, attention, respect, support, encouragement, 
security, comfort. Those are relational needs. God doesn't meet critical relational needs. Now, He accepts us unconditionally, but He doesn't meet our physical needs for acceptance. You know who meets our physical, you know who meets our critical relational needs? People. Others. He designed you, He's even commanded you to love other people in the way that you want to be loved. Basically, to meet each, that we would meet each other's critical needs. That's why community is such a big deal. So we have crucial needs that are met by God. We have critical needs that are met by people. And the last kind of needs are casual needs. Casual needs are taste and preferences around a thousand things as to how we want our life to go. I'd rather drive a Ford than a Chevy. I'd rather live in Richmond than Sugarland. I'd rather live in Houston than Dallas. I'd rather live in Texas than California. Can I have an amen? Amen. I would rather, this is a big deal, I'd rather work here than there. I'd rather marry her than her, like you have a choice. I'd rather, I'd rather drive this direction than that direction. I'd rather get my needs met this way than that way. I'd rather shop here than there. I'd rather buy this shirt than that shirt and a thousand other things. There are small, insignificant casual needs. When they go unmet, create a small, insignificant disturbance. But there are large, significant casual needs. When they go unmet, create a large, significant disturbance. God meets crucial needs. People meet critical needs. And we have the autonomy and freedom, especially in the United States of America, to meet our casual needs however we want. And this is why I say much, if not most, worry and anxiety is related to a misplaced value. When we misplace a need in a category that it doesn't belong, that's the most common reason to trigger an anxious mood or a depressed mood. Like when an 18-year-old kid says, if I don't get into Rice University, I'll just die. Oh, really? You'll die? Because what that, what that kid is saying, if I don't get into Rice University, I can't feel good about myself. He's attached getting into Rice University to his worth or value. And if he's a Christian kid, he'll go, oh, sweet Jesus, please help me get into Rice University. Now, I don't think Jesus is sarcastic like me, but if he were, I think he might respond by saying, excuse me, since when did Rice University climb up on a cross and die for your sins? Rice University has nothing to say about your worth and value. Now, Rice University has a lot to say about whether or not they want you in their school, but they have nothing to say about your worth and value. Or when a 16-year-old girl says, if Tommy doesn't ask me to the prom, I'll just die. Oh, really? Did Tommy climb up on a cross and die for your sin? Since when does Tommy have anything to do with your worth and value? Tommy has nothing to do with your worth and value. Now, he has a lot to say about whether or not he wants to dance with you at the prom. But he has nothing to say about your worth and value. Or when a 40-year-old man says, if I don't close this deal, I can't feel good about myself. So if I can't experience success or some sort of uh, approval or recognition or affirmation, then I can't feel good about myself, worth and value. He or she has moved that critical need 
to the crucial category where it doesn't belong. If you've attached anything to your worth and value, and Jesus brought it up in the lives of these these, uh, Jewish people on a hillside 2,000 years ago, what you eat, what you drink, he's addressing how you come to feel good about yourself. How you come to value your life. If you've made what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, how your life goes, your worth and value, then you're going to have anxiety about it if for no other reason you've moved it to a place it doesn't belong. He challenges them. Later on, he says in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, I got to read this. It's just... It's just so good. He is sending the disciples out to, uh, to minister. And he's giving them all these instructions. And at one point he says, he's talking about the birds again. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Asked a question that he already knows the answer to. He's trying to get them to get it. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. Why? You are worth more than many sparrows. His version of don't be afraid had to do with your worth. Your worth. This passage is demanding that we examine how do I get my sense of Peace and joy and worth and my sense of well-being. If it's in this external world around me, what I drink, what I sow, what I, what I uh, eat, what I wear, who's going to come through for me or not, then you shouldn't be surprised at being anxious because that is just the logical consequence. You, don't, you won't be able to avoid being anxious. If you move a casual or a critical need, somebody's approval. I have a therapist friend who says we all walk around with a lanyard around our neck with a sign that says, vote for me. And when he told me that, there were a couple people standing there and this other person was a uh, therapist and she said, oh, I think it says, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a request, vote for me. It's a question. Vote for me? Do you vote for me? As if I need your vote so I can feel good about myself. When someone tells me they're, I've had people tell me they're a people pleaser or they're an approval addict, and then they slough it off like, but I know that's not not that big of a deal. And I go, I'm thinking, no, it's a pretty big deal because it ensures you're going to have a lot of generalized anxiety if you're an approval addict. Because every person you come along, you're going to wait to find out, do they vote for me or not? This begs the question, whose vote do you want? Whose vote can you not live without? Jesus is telling us on the Sermon on the Mount, are you not more valuable than the birds? Implied, of course you are. And I take really good care of the birds. 
And I take care of them because I love them. And they're valuable to me. And you are infinitely, incredibly more valuable to me than they are. I love those birds. But I love you more. Listen to some of this. Psalm 10.4 says, In their pride the wicked do not seek Him. In all their thoughts, thinking, there is no room for God. Is it possible for you to have a transformed mind? Paul puts it like this. And there are many statements like this throughout the New Testament. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. It says in Romans, to the Romans, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Stop thinking like the world thinks, is what he's saying. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Not be transformed by changing your behavior. Be transformed by paying close attention to what you think. Paul says, whatever things are true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind, what? Dwell on these things. Remember I said earlier, if you're trying to stop an obsessive pattern to redirect your thoughts, that's what this means. Let your mind dwell on these things. Dwell basically means to meditate. Meditate. Two things we can all do, and the first is this, if we want to be less anxious people. Two things we can do. The first is to meditate. Meditate's a word that's kind of scary for people. They wonder, is that kind of weird? Don't the Buddhists meditate? Uh, Dallas Willard, a guy I love to read, says, yes, the Buddhists do meditate, but they also eat breakfast. It's a good thing to do, and we should do it too. Scripture has quite a lot to say about meditating. In the very first psalm, the psalmist says this, people who love God delight in God's word and God's law, and they do what? They meditate on it day and night. It's really a quite simple thing to do. How many people here know how to worry? You should all raise your hand. You're not. You're filthy liars. <laughs> we all know how to worry. Meditating, in a sense, is just a, pos a positive uh, kind of worry. You just allow that thought to come back to your mind and come back to your mind. That's all meditating is. Meditating is your mind dwelling dwelling you begin to think i've set the lord always before me now what would it look like if you were to wake up first thing in the morning and instead of being overwhelmed by how much i have to do or worried about something i knew god was right there with me you picture yourself going through your day not shaken because god is there with love and peace and joy and here's what happens over time in your mind you start to think I really do want God, not just because I'm supposed to do right and believe the right thing so I can go to heaven, but I really do want this kind of life. I must. I will have it. God, whatever I need to do to move toward it, I'll do it. My suggestion is that you take these words from, from, like from Psalm 16, write them down, put them on your desk at work, put them in your calendar or on a mirror, and that's the first challenge, to meditate. To meditate on that which is, causes you to flourish. And it won't be other people's approval. 
As much as that, make you have a, that may make you have a great day, it won't make you have a great life. The second challenge is this. One is I'm going to get intentional about what I'm going to store up or meditate on in my mind. But then I also get intentional about what I'm not going to store up in my mind. What I'm going to exclude. I'm going to start getting intentional around the law of exposure. I'm not sure that I'm prepared to say I want TV to be the primary mental storage provider in my life. A few years ago, some friends of mine uh, had a house fire and it burned their house down. And they had to take inventory of their life or of their possessions. It was a family of five. And one of the things they discovered, this was one of those things that God would, this would be like a question God would ask. And I would say he would ask you the same thing. They had to answer the question, how many TVs do you have? They're a family of five. They had seven TVs. He said, all of a sudden I realized we had come to a place in our lives where we didn't want to enter a room and not be able to turn the TV on. That we had grown uncomfortable with silence. If any of y'all are going to get rid of TVs out of uh, conviction at a really low price, high-end HD TVs, let me know. <laughs> a few years ago, so here's the challenge. If you can decide if you're up for it or not. The challenge is to go one week without watching any TV at all. Cold turkey. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Do you think the Grove community can do that for a week? No TV, no social media for a week. No Oprah, no Dr. Phil, no CNN, no Fox, no MTV, no Lifetime Chick Flick Disease of the Week movie. No Good Morning America, no Today Show, no Tonight Show. For one week, I'm not going to watch a single thing on TV except for the NCAA basketball tournament. Other than that, it's not going to happen. What if you were to do that? What if you were to say, God, I just want to explore where the fodder of material is coming from that I store in my mind. And so I'm going to fast. Half of my sermon was brought up in the content of the songs we sang and some of the just transitional things that were said by Lance and the, and the prayers and the scriptures that were read even before I got here. I'm just going to fast. Historically, people who are wise and serious about spiritual life have fasted. One of the ways you can fast is to fast from the media, from TV and social media. Maybe you'll say, God, I'm scared and I'll be a little bored this week if I do that. So would you help me evaluate what I'm storing in my mind? I cannot remember the last time someone came to me and said, last night I spent the whole night watching TV and today I'm filled with love and peace and joy. If you'll not fast from media for a week, then begin every day. Listen carefully. If you're not going to do this, then do an alternative to this. Begin every day for the same week with this prayer, and I guarantee your chronic anxiety will diminish. Earlier in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, there's five verses. 
Remember, Jesus knew that when he came to this culture 2,000 years ago, and he, brought, and he went up on this mountainside and began to speak to his disciples and the crowds that were gathering, he knew they were experiencing anxiety. This is an anxious crowd he's talking to. And some of the most anxious are the 12 he chose. And this is what he told them. One of the things they asked is, Lord, how should we pray? He said, pray like this. This is how you should pray. He said, my Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Later manuscripts say, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now I'm not saying say the prayer or recite the prayer. I'm saying pray the prayer. Pray it slow enough that you take in every phrase. Go to Psalm 27. Y'all look at the screen here. I love Psalm 27. We're going to conclude with this. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Then it asks the question, Whom shall I fear? He's, raising, he's bringing up the topic of anxiety right here. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, not if, but when. Not if, but when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart, my heart will what? Not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell, remember hearing that word, dwell, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's not talking about changing address. He's talking about what he thinks about. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life. And this is my favorite phrase. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That is talking about worship. Those of you who are singers and worship leaders and musicians, I want you to know and be reminded what you do leading us in worship does more for our anxiety than what we do as preachers. And I'd like to think that this content is helpful, but it will only be helpful if you apply it. But I'm telling you, fill your day with worship if you'd like to see your chronic anxiety diminish. I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and I will seek Him in His temple. Whom shall I fear? Meditate, fast, exclude, redirect. You have more than enough to work on this week. Just pick one. Let's pray together.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me so much time to talk about something that you deal with me in my life all the time. I pray, Father, that everyone here will find something in this message that they will, they will make application of as a takeaway in their life. And the result will be they will be more relaxed in your presence, less anxious, obsessing less, and that the people who love them and around them would be directed to you by saying, God, I can tell God is working in their life. Father, that's our hope, that you would change us and transform us from the inside out.